I say this in all seriousness um, as I look at you, but let me just tell you this. The, the devil does not want you to hear this message tonight. He doesn't want you to understand it. He, he doesn't want you to apply it correctly. He wants you to be confused about this passage that we're in tonight. If, if, if you are confused about this, he can have a, a grip on your life that is great, that is destructive, that is powerful. He, he does not want you to understand this message. So think about that while you're listening. You, you have an adversary that will try to do whatever he can to distract you. Don't be that distraction. Don't let yourself be distracted tonight because this is an incredible, incredible passage that should cause, should cause some in this room to shudder and should cause others in this room to be steadfast. So pay close attention. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. In studying this passage tonight, I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, and it's a big paragraph, and I'm going to read it out loud, so please try to pay attention. He, he says this about who Jesus is. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Uh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. It's funny. Uh, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic or a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Once again, listen to what he says. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him, you can declare him to be a demon, but don't make him into be just a good moral teacher. He hasn't left that open to you. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm helped by that. I think our passage kind of breaks down that way. And so I'm going to just outline it that way. Uh, we're, going to look at, we're going to look at three different verdicts of Jesus, three different human verdicts of Jesus. And notice one of them is not that he was a good moral teacher. You can't read the gospel and come away with the conclusion, oh, he's just a nice guy. He's just my buddy, 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 buddy friend. You don't really have that option. Um, he's either... He's, he's a lunatic in some people's eyes. He's a liar or he is my Lord. So let's turn in our Bibles. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read our passage tonight. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. 
Um, Then he came home, that is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So let's look at the first verdict on Jesus. And maybe you're starting to pick this up a little bit. The first verdict comes from the mouth of those those people that probably knew Jesus the best. And who did they call Jesus? They didn't call him a great guy, a great Lord, a great God. They called him a lunatic, right? Uh, There's his family in verse 21. They hear about all these things that Jesus is doing just just to kind of bring you up to speed. Jesus has been doing all these miracles, casting out demons, healing people remarkably. They're calling him out of his mind. And, and I think the reason why they're doing this is, is they're, they're, they're worried. Their family reputation is in danger here. Hey, Jesus is doing all these things, and there's this bad reputation that's kind of following Jesus wherever he goes. We're going to kind of distance ourselves from him by saying, hey, he's just crazy. He is a madman. Notice they're not saying Jesus is possessed but they're, they're kind of leaving that open a little bit. And they make this plan in verse 21 to seize him. They're, they're going to go and kind of do this family intervention. We're going to go save Jesus from himself. He is nuts. So they're going after Jesus. And, and notice once again, the reason they are doing this, they're offended by who Jesus is because of their own pride, Right? Jesus is giving our family a bad reputation, a bad name. We are ashamed of Jesus, so we're going to, we're going to decide something about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is a lunatic. That's point number one. We're going to go through point number one really fast. Point number two, almost as fast. And then point number three is going to be so long, it's going to be like a sermon in and of itself. So, point number one, he is a lunatic. Point number two, he is a Liar. Here's another verdict that people were making about Jesus. He is a liar. The, the scribes come down from Jerusalem. Actually, if you're looking at a map, they're going up from Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem's on this hill, you always go down from Jerusalem, whether you go north or south or east or west. That's just the way it goes. So they're going up north, going down from Jerusalem. And look at what they're saying. They're saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince 
of demons, he casts out demons. And then down there in verse 30, they say, he has an unclean spirit. So here Jesus is, casting out all of these demons out of people, saving people from the bondage of the kingdom of death, as we heard about two weeks ago. And what do they conclude? Ah, he's possessed. He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And if you notice... Um, well, you, you, you would see this if, you, if you're reading in the original that were saying, that's a, that's a kind of a verb that kind of implies this repeated ongoing sense. So this is like an intentional rumor. These scribes and Pharisees aren't coming from Jerusalem on a fun little pleasure cruise of the uh, Galilean uh, lakeside. They are going intentionally to defame Jesus. They are repeating this rumor. And this might be the rumor that the family is hearing and causing them to be distressed. And they, they call him possessed by Beelzebub, by the way. Um, it's interesting that they can't argue with his authority, they can't argue with his power, but they have to find some sort of explanation for it. He's got this power and this authority, but it's, uh, we'll just say it's from Satan. And then so they call it from Satan, and they, he, they refer to Satan, Beelzebub, a lord of the house, or maybe possibly lord of the flies, as some people put it. Beelzebub, lord. They kind of refer to Satan in kind of this um, of sense of like the, the lord and the master over the kingdom of darkness. So there's this hierarchy among the, the demons. That's the name there that they kind of use. And, and why are they arguing this about Jesus? Why are they coming to this conclusion? Well, similar to the, to the family's response to Jesus, they have personal pride getting in their way of receiving and responding to Jesus with believing open hearts. It's, it's not that Jesus is being mysterious or being confusing or being strange or weird or acting like a lunatic. Jesus has been very, very clear in the words he's said. And if you've read through Mark up until now, you've seen that Jesus has been offering the kingdom to the 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 land of Israel. He's been saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Now, to you, that sounds like a lunatic, but to the children of Israel, that was their expectation, their hope. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. Matter of fact, all throughout the Old Testament, there are all these promises of the Messiah coming and doing lots of things like what Jesus was doing. And Jesus has been very clear about who he is and what he's offering. He's offering the kingdom. But look at this, he's demanding repentance. He's saying, hey, if you are in the kingdom, your life is going to be marked by repentance, by humility. He's also claiming authority over sin. And by the way, when he claimed authority over sin, as we saw, he was saying, hey, you guys aren't righteous because you aren't coming to me because you, you don't have a problem with your sin. Therefore, you don't have forgiveness. And he's also, in that way, condemning their righteousness. We, we see in Matthew, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of setting up a, another standard of righteousness. Hey, those people that are really a part of this kingdom that you guys have been looking forward to for all these years, this is what they look like. It doesn't look like these religious teachers. It is a higher standard. So that's why they hate Jesus. That's why they've come to this conclusion. It's kind of like when you are doing an assignment at school and... You're, you come, you, you, you don't do any reading or anything, and your teacher says, hey, I want you to study this topic, and you're like, okay, what is my conclusion about that topic? Okay, I believe this about that topic. And then you go try to find the, the conclusions that you have already made up in your head. They started their study, their research, with a, an opinion about who Jesus was, and lo and behold, that's what they found. They found Jesus to be a liar. They, he is claiming to be 
God, but he is lying about that. He is actually under the power of Beelzebub. So there's the, the first two verdicts. The last verdict, remember this one's going to be a little bit longer. He is um, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. He is my Lord, my God, and my judge. When Jesus responds to their claim, notice how clear he is. Notice how logical he is. Notice how much authority he has in his response. As a matter of fact, they can't really make a uh, response to his response. He says this thing about how can Satan be divided against Satan? How can a house be divided against a house? If, if I am under the, the power of the devil, which is the best explanation you guys can come to, because you don't want to come to the obvious conclusion that I'm actually the Messiah because that means we're wrong, if I am under the power of the devil, the devil is really using a foolish strategy, right? Who, who bets against their own team? Who, who plays for the other side if they really want to win? Nobody does this. That's what they're accusing the devil of doing. This is a, an improbable explanation. Now, on top of that, Jesus offers a much better explanation. Doesn't it make much more sense that I'm actually opposing the devil and Satan and all of his demons and, and attacking this kingdom of death? Doesn't that make a whole lot much more sense if, I am, if I'm coming and casting out demons? He says in verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. It's like this. It says in the Bible that the whole world is under the power of the devil. So what does Jesus do when he comes into the world? He asserts his power, asserts his authority, shows that he has more strength than the devil does, and he starts binding the strong man. The strong man, Satan, can't do anything. And by doing that, he is able to plunder his goods. By the way, what, what, are, what are the devil's goods? Well, they're people like you. They're people like you that are in bondage to sin and to Satan, Christ comes in as the strong man and is doing a rescue mission on the household of Satan and he is conquering. He is conquering mightily. And guess what? It's very interesting. Whenever Satan does, or when Jesus does anything, he doesn't really need to do that much effort. He just has to speak a word and, and demons fly. He just has to say something, touch something, and sickness is healed. Jesus has all power, incredible power. It's not even a competition. That's who Jesus is. That is a, a good verdict to come to. Now, now we come to the vital point, and I do want to spend a lot of time on this. Jesus, Jesus makes a judgment about the kind of hard-hearted response that these religious leaders are making towards Jesus in calling good evil and evil good. He, he makes a judgment. And, and you see that there in verse 28 through 29. This is known as the passage of the unforgivable sin. Now, you've probably heard of the unforgivable sin. I think everybody, anybody who even has or has not read their Bible has probably heard of this notion of the unforgivable sin. Matter of fact, some people live their entire lives dominated by the thought, I think I have committed the unpardonable sin. I don't know what it is but I feel like I've committed the unpardonable sin. It, it's helpful then for you to understand what this might be, what this is. Um, and I think we can, we can kind of get a good sense of what the unpardonable sin is just by reading the passage clearly. Nobody, nobody ever seems to understand that context matters when you read the Bible. 
and when they're worried about these sins, they refuse to read. But let's just make a few quick observations. First off, verse 28, Jesus says something curious. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven of the children of men. So already, already right there, Jesus is making a reference of all sin being forgivable. And then a little bit further down, he even says, hey, blasphemies will even be forgiven. If you guys know the character Paul, who, or Saul, who turned into Paul, who persecuted the church, he did incredibly horrible things to the early church. It even says in some parts, he caused them to blaspheme. So what do you think he was doing if he was causing other people to blaspheme? Maybe the name of Jesus. But even these sins, even blasphemies, speaking against God will be forgiven. But, but then we have this statement in verse 29, but whoever... Um, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Notice the sin here is not something specific like sleeping in or eating too much or lust or greed or, or anything like that. It is against a person. It is a response to an individual. Sins against the Holy Spirit. That's what the sin is right here. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, in, in Mark, the Holy Spirit is the person that empowers Jesus' ministry and kind of identifies Jesus. All of these signs and miracles that Jesus is doing are by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is basically saying, this is the one, this is the servant of the Lord that I'm going to deliver my people through. And it's very important to notice in the context Who is Jesus speaking to here? He is not speaking to disciples. He is not speaking to Christians. He's not speaking to people that have a troubled conscience about possibly committing the unforgivable sin. He's talking to hardened religious leaders that have already come to a conclusion about Jesus. I don't care what you show me. I don't even care if you rise from the dead. I will not believe that you are the one that I should follow. Repent. Serve. That's who he's talking to. That's very, very important to notice that. And on top of those passage observations, just just a few theological factors, like big picture Bible factors that you need to know about sin. First off, this thing, really important. Write this down if you're taking notes. Even one sin, even one sin is enough to send you to hell. Think about that. Instead of thinking about, man, is there some unpardonable sin out there? Think about this, man. One sin is good enough to send me to hell. Apart from Christ, I should go to hell for one sin. And another factor you need to consider is the blood of Jesus is told repeatedly to cleanse us from all sin. Not even in this, not just in this passage, but all over. First John 1 7, it says this the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then a little bit further down in verse 9 of 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, that's a key word, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here in the New Testament, we have this picture of, hey, if you confess, you will be saved. As a matter of fact, in Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All throughout the Bible, we see this idea of the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then another factor we need to consider is there is nothing that can separate those who are purchased and pardoned by the blood of Christ. Maybe this is a a new thought to some of you, but in John 6, 37, Jesus says something incredible and 
powerful. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then down a little bit further in 38 of chapter 6 of John, and this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So, there is nothing that can separate you from the blood of Christ. So it's not like you're walking as a Christian one day, you commit the unpardonable sin, and you're out. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 tells us. Another another factor is we see in that same verse, John 6, 37, there, there is no such thing, there is no such thing as someone who is earnestly seeking after Christ, and is left outside in the cold. There is no such thing as someone who comes to Christ wanting to confess their sins, and Christ says, nope, you've committed a sin that I just can't forgive. You will not find that person. That person does not exist. Like it says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So so what is the un... um, forgivable sin or unpardonable sin well it's basically this and maybe you're already getting this maybe this is already clear in your mind it is the sin that responds in hardened unbelief to the witness of the spirit about who christ is and and probably it's a very historically specific sin it is especially these religious leaders seeing the miracles of jesus and just turning a hard heart away from jesus or or to put it simply the unforgivable sin is not coming to Jesus. That's what the unforgivable sin is. When you say, I've heard all these good things about Jesus, but I'm going to do it my way, that is the unforgivable sin. The only way you can find forgiveness of sin is not by racking up these good works and hoping your good works outweigh your bad works, but no, coming to Jesus and trusting in Him fully for your salvation. Uh, Or to put it another way, maybe that's helpful, if you are very concerned and fearful about committing this unpardonable sin, this isn't your problem. Or to put it a different way, um, if you've committed the unforgivable sin, you don't care. You don't care about the unforgivable sin. It doesn't matter to you. Because Christ doesn't matter to you you that's what it means i like jc ryle he writes a lot of good stuff he's old and he's dead that means he's good um not necessarily true um he says this those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it that's what we learned about it so are you concerned about sin are you troubled by sin and more importantly are you coming to christ with all of the freight and ugliness of your sin then you can find full forgiveness for sin. But if, if sin isn't a problem to you, if you are, 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 are angry at the notion of somebody being the Lord and God of your life, then be careful. You are on a dangerous, dangerous precipice. Now, I said this was probably, probably a direct judgment on the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, and we, and we do see Jesus kind of transition uh, uh, his ministry from from, hey, the kingdom is now, to, hey, the kingdom is future. You see that in Matthew especially. But I think there's a, there's a wider application here. We see elsewhere in the New Testament of people spurning Jesus and not finding any, uh, any ability to find forgiveness outside of him. For example, you can write this down and look it up later. Hebrews 6, 
4 through 6 talks about people who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have, who have somehow shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. And these people are in this impossible situation. Notice, these people are having a lot of spiritual experiences, but later on in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, in fact, it says, hey, you've had a lot of experiences, but none of these experiences are Things that belong to salvation. What belongs to salvation? Coming to Christ in faith and repentance, in humbleness of spirit, needing Him. Well, well, that's the unpardonable sin. And, and basically, that's the sin that says, you are not Lord. It, it's coming up with any other explanation or conclusion for who Jesus is. And, and notice here, right at the end of chapter 3, we have Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers coming and standing outside. Now, it's very curious that Mark separates the family intervention. He, he interjects this little thing about the unpardonable sin right here because he wants to tell you something theological. He wants to tell you this, uh, this theological key to the whole entire story. And it's basically, it's basically like this. This family's conclusion about who Jesus is, it's coming from the same spiritual heart that these religious leaders had. It is coming from this heart that is not wanting to receive who Jesus is and believe in him as Savior. It's coming as, 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 as somebody that's quick to make a, an excuse about who Jesus is so they can keep being you know, Lord of their life. They can keep serving their pride. Uh, this is a warning. This is a warning to, to anyone who would think like, hey, I'm going to just maybe wait until I'm 30 to get saved or wait till I'm 40 to get saved or, or something like that. It, it, the whole passage here is just saying, hey, if you do not respond to Jesus as Lord, what does Jesus do? He pronounces judgment on you, but look at this especially. He separates from you. Notice his his mother and his brothers arrive and they want Jesus. They're seeking Jesus. Why are they seeking Jesus? So that they can capture him and bring him back to Nazareth. But notice, Jesus says, I'm not going to come with you. I'm not going to be with you. And that is the warning of the gospel message. Hey, if you continually put it off, if you continually hard your heart against the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus will slowly but surely step away from you, separate himself from you. You don't know if this is the last time you're ever going to hear the gospel message. You don't know, but you are hardening your heart in stubbornness and, and hoping to get away. You're hoping to gamble and get a few more years of your life. Well, to, to put a positive spin on this, just notice, this isn't the end of the story for Mary or for Jesus' brothers. This is, this is a warning that I, I think they responded rightly to. Because we see later, Mary comes to Jesus, is at Jesus' cross. We see some of Jesus' brothers, at least, James and Jude, who wrote letters in the New Testament, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. This isn't the end of the road. You, you too, at the, at, even tonight, you can come to Jesus with all of your sin and find full forgiveness if you receive this warning. Hey, I don't want to mess around with Jesus anymore. I don't want to just think my own thoughts about him. I want to think his own thoughts about him and follow him as he says he is. That, that is the offer tonight. That is, that is, the, that is the, the sin that won't be forgiven to not come to Jesus. So I, I beg you and plead for you, will you come to Jesus tonight even? Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the way you are, um, 
powerfully opened up your word to us tonight in showing us the depth of your forgiveness and the depth of your grace. We pray tonight that you would indeed humble hearts that are distant from you, that are hardened against you, that are proud and, and, and unwilling to receive you. I pray for those who, who are soft of hearts and worried about sin and concerned. I pray that this message would secure them and give them great hope in your gospel and in your salvation. I pray now for small groups that we would be ready to share with one another. I pray in your name. Amen.